Welcome to Series 2 of Finding Home, a podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. This podcast is presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland, Ohio. Series 2 features interviews of Clevelanders talking about an array of topics relating to the history of the Irish in our city. Please excuse any variation in audio quality as these interviews have been conducted over the phone and over Zoom. Support for Series 2 of Finding Home comes from the Michael Talty and Helen Talty Charitable Trust. Thanks so much for listening, and please enjoy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Margaret Lynch, Executive Director of the Irish American Archives Society. Welcome to our podcast series, Finding Home, and today I'm speaking with Father Jim O'Donnell. Father O'Donnell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Margaret. We're so glad to have you here. And can't wait to find out more about how you grew up, who your family is. Tell me a little bit about your family to start with. You yeah. did so many things as an adult, but let's give them credit for starting you out. That's right. Well, my mother and father came to us from County Mayo, Ireland. My mother was in a little place called Ballantubber, which is a, an abbey that still celebrates Mass every day. And my father came from a little place called Island 80 which is nearby Westport. Right. Mm-hmm. On the Castlebar Road. <laughs> okay. And they did, did they know each other in Ireland? No, they didn't. No. They met at an Irish dance. Very common story, right? And that, as my mother so joyfully would say, your father came to the dance with Annie so-and-so, but he went home with me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Annie, for giving up her... <laughs> What were your parents' names? My mother is Margaret, and she went by Maggie in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Maggie Caveney. They pronounce that here, I guess, Kevney. K-E-A-V-E-N-E-Y. Okay. It's Caveney, and in this country, it's Kevney. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, Your dad's name. Yeah. And my dad was Owen, best known as Red, very dear member of the 310 local. In fact, one of his first jobs when he came here was working on the terminal tower. Okay, so did he come in the 20s, the late 20s? Is that when he came? In the 20s, yeah. My mother came, you know, she left Ireland and went to the Cove of Cork and sailed for, I guess, a whole week. And she arrived in New York, and her uncle, her father's brother, his name was Hugh Caveney, and he's the one that sponsored her. Okay. My father, however, came in undocumented. All right. He was a person that worked on the ship. That's how he earned his passageway and ended up up in um, Quebec. Kind of slipped off the ship at some point, right? <laughs> I think some of my great uncles came that way, too. <laughs> his, his sister, Delia, was working for a, a lawyer down in Magnolia Drive near the art museum. Okay. Do you know his name, the lawyer's name? I don't know the lawyer's name. Oh, Okay. But he brought my father back to Canada and got him to legal papers to come into this country. What a great guy. Thank you. <laughs> Unknown lawyer on Magnolia. <laughs> my father came all the way from Quebec and found Magnolia Drive, where he found his sister. Wow. Yeah. And it was probably a pretty big house that she was working in. Those houses that are surviving now are fairly substantial. A nanny, a nanny and a cook, as, as many of them were, so. Yeah, right, right. And they met at a dance. They got married at uh, Mac Conception Church in Superior. Okay. And what 
what kind of work? Oh, you said your father was in 310 and he was working on the terminal tower. Did he have any stories of that? Yes, he has many stories of that. He said they had to go down 230 feet to hit rock bottom. And one day, two of his buddies asked him to switch them with their shift. So he, he switched shifts. And the two guys that took his shift, they went down into that well. And when they were pouring the concrete at that depth, yeah. one of the walls broke loose and buried the two of them in there. Right. Yeah. That Probably was. Would have been in that ditch, except that he switched shifts that night with the two other guys. Oh, my gosh. I, unfortunately, I don't remember their names. I don't know. Mm-hmm. One of them was a Tulis and the other was Cleary, I think. I've done a little reading about that. Mm-hmm. Tulis and Cleary, yeah. Wow. Yeah. My great uncles were also working on that job. Nothing as dramatic as that, but always mentioned about how that had happened. And I think they knew the guys too. So, wow. It's just uh, how many people gave their lives to build the city, right? But gosh, yeah. Yeah. It was finally built in 1930, but it took, what, two years, three years to build mm-hmm. the terminal. Right, right. So your dad is living on the east side, probably because of his sister being over there? Yes. Uh-huh. He, his mother died when he was young, and Dee was the oldest of the family of seven, and he she became like the matriarch figure in that family. Right. Mm-hmm. They all moved into East Cleveland, all my aunts and uncles on my father's side. Mm-hmm. On my mother's side, she's only one of three that came from Ireland. Okay. When I would go back to Ireland to Bell and Tubber, I had all these relatives all these first cousins uh, that always welcomed me home like I was my family, you know. Uh-huh, because they stayed. My father, all, all of them came out here except his youngest brother, Jimmy, and he stayed. Oh, okay. All right. And that's the father of Kathleen O'Malley. Okay. Now cousin O'Donnell. All right. So how many children were there in your family? Four. Okay. So... Were you growing up in East Cleveland also? What parish did you grow up in? You said your parents got married at Immaculate Conception, but you didn't stay. We lived always in St. Philomena's. St. Philomena's. In East Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I was born in East Cleveland. Okay. So you attended St. Philomena's grade school. How about high school? Cathedral Latin. Right. And you are not the oldest in your family, are you? I am the oldest. Oh, you are. Okay. All right. But you had a brother who went to Cathedral Latin also. And my brother's name was Gene. Mm-hmm. He was three years younger than I am. Okay. He is since deceased, but... Was he a sports... Uh, he was very good at sports. ...star in high school, I think, I've heard. Yeah, he played basketball and football. Mm-hmm. And he actually got a scholarship to Latin for football and for academics. He had two scholarships. Wow. But he was both very bright and also very... Athletically gifted. Mm-hmm. And the two of you got involved in Gaelic football together, I think. We did. He started. Okay. Well, we all started together, actually, with a man called Patty Duffy from, from Roscommon. Right. And was Patty Duffy also in St. Philomena's Parish? He was, yeah. And his son, Pat. We, his son, right. Pat Duffy, and Gene, my, my brother, and myself, we all played Gaelic football together. Right. And Patty was our coach. <laughs> yes, he was the coach. The father was the coach. Right. Okay. Yes, I've seen some newspaper clippings with the names in them. Yeah. I was just thinking, I, I can remember most of the names of those guys that played. You know, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Who the goalie was, I knew who was in the backfield. Father Kitt was playing really at that time. Mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy. 
Betty Campbell. And I think, uh, was Henry Cavanaugh the manager of the team? Yeah, he was the manager. Right. Vicky Prendergast. Oh, yeah, right, right. So this is the late 40s, right? And early, very early 50s. Late 40s, yeah. Early 50s. Yeah, right. Because I was in the seminary most of that time. Oh, okay. I went to the seminary in, in the fall of 1950. All right. What do you think led you to the priesthood? How long were you thinking about it? And what was the final decision to, to go? Well, I must say, I was just thinking the other day, my vocation was born on May the 7th, 1937, when I made my first communion. My goodness. Okay. And that's when I felt a real call into the priesthood. Wow. Because I can remember in the second grade, Sister Naomi got arrested. I was having trouble with Matt. She says, Jimmy, you'll never be able to count the collection. <laughs> <laughs> so she was kind of presuming you're going to be a priest also, huh? She was. Okay. You all encouraged me, and um, I never really looked back from that. I always knew that was my goal. When I got finished grade school, then I was thinking of going in the minor seminary, and I had a good parish priest, Father Winchester, that told me, go home and grow up, Jimmy. Live oh. with your family until you finish high school. Okay. Best advice he could ever have given me. That's good. And he said, when you finish high school, come back and get me. And I did. And he preached my first mass. Oh, wow. So you felt you had a lot of encouragement from the people around you to consider that and pursue it. And how did your parents feel about it? Um, I think they felt, I know they felt very good about it. I mean, yeah. my, I know my father and my mother both gave me a lot of encouragement. And, um, and yeah, I, I never felt anything adversarial. Uh-huh. For my siblings either, they all, yeah. nobody, nobody ever got in the way and said, I don't think you should do this. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> it was all positive. Encouragement all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did your classmates in high school know that you were, that's what you were thinking about? And how did they treat you or regard you? Did it put any barriers between you and them? Or No, I never had any problems there. Uh, actually, um, one of my best friends in high school ended up in the seminary with me. Oh, all right. And he encouraged me to join the Sodality, which I did, mm-hmm. and go on trips to Appalachia and stuff with people. Oh, okay. So anyhow, his name was Ray Finnerty, and he was in my class, and he died a number of years ago. In fact, I'm ordained 66 years this May. Wow. There's only two of us left in a class of 24. Who's the other one who's left with you? Carl Euler, and he's over at Marymount in hospice. Oh, in hospice. Oh, dear. Okay, so when were you ordained? What year? May the 19th, 1956. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you remember all these special dates very well, don't you? I do. Yeah. So where were you assigned when you were first ordained? St. Coleman's. St. Coleman's, okay. <laughs> that must have felt familiar enough. <laughs> In the seminary, they had a custom on the, knee, on the uh, like, two days before we were ordained, they would put up a list in the back of our bathroom door, and they gave all the different men in your class, they gave, a, gave them names of where they're going to be assigned. Mm-hmm. And mine was the St. Coleman's. Mm-hmm. Mine was the only one that was right. <laughs> what? They were playing a trick on everybody? <laughs> they were the St. Coleman's because they knew it was very Irish. Yeah, right. And I, I, as it turned out, I worked on the buildings during the summer with a lot of these guys that were over at St. Coleman's at that time. Mm-hmm. In fact, very interesting connection is that many of the people that left Ireland left by way of the Cove of Cork. 
Right. And the cathedral in the Cove of Cork is St. Coleman's. Oh, okay. So maybe they had been there for their last mass in Ireland, huh? And when they came to Cleveland, their first mass was at St. Coleman's. Okay. All right. Yeah. And St. Coleman's is a beautiful, I mean, it's not a cathedral, of course, but it's imposing like that. Yeah. Right. Wow. Six years at St. Coleman's. It was great. It was a great place for me to begin. I love the people. And they certainly loved and supported me. So. So somewhere early in your priesthood career, you became the chaplain to the pioneers. Can you tell us about the pioneers and how you were drawn to that? My mother encouraged me with that. She said, at the age of 14 in Ireland, after you made your confirmation, you took a pledge for life. Right. And she encouraged me to do that, and I did it. Okay. So I never had any alcohol. I, I tell people I've never tasted a bottle of beer even. I, but <laughs> wow. My father, of course, liked his porter and his stout. <laughs> uh, never got in the way of that. No, he never said, oh, Jimmy, you shouldn't do that or whatever. Mm-hmm. He just respected everything we did. And uh, mm-hmm. so I started really being in the pioneers at 14. Wow. And when I came to St. Coleman's, there was a group of pioneers that came over. And in May of 1957, we started the first chapter at St. Pat's on Bridge. Okay. Yeah. So what you're saying is that a lot of the immigrants, had already taken the pledge in Ireland at age 14. And so when they came here, there wasn't an organized club yet or structure yet, but they still adhered to the principles themselves and found each other, I'm sure, and uh, sought each other out. And so you made a formal club. We formed a formal chapter of the first pioneer in the Diocese of Cleveland. Okay. That's on bridge. You weren't you weren't assigned to St. Pat's at that time, were you? Oh, I was at St. Coleman's. What made St. Pat's the right place to, you know, uh, sponsor it? I think a lot of them were there at that time in St. Pat's. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I can figure out is that most of them had connections with St. Pat's on Bridge. Okay. I'm not quite sure, you know, other than a number of the people that formed that first chapter of the Pioneers, um, I think many of them were at St. Pat's at that time. Yeah. Could Father Kit have had something to do with it? Father Kit? Yeah. Uh, not at that time, no. Oh, okay. He was, with, he was part of our pioneers, but uh, yeah. at least not the... I was there by myself with them when we started. Mm-hmm. So Father Kit wasn't with us at that time. Okay. I was the only priest that started with them in 1957. Who else was involved at that time? Who else? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> well, I think of uh, Joe Boland. I think of... Um, Right. Was Nell Buckley there yet or not? Well, I can't think of all the names that were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of them in the pioneers today were not in that group of 1957. Right. But Joe Boland was a, a stalwart in the group for many years. Right. Father Jim Kenny was, was right there with me. He was one of the priests that came to that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I don't know if we... I'm just feeling now that maybe we didn't state, for those who don't know, explicitly that the pioneers committed themselves to not drinking alcohol. It was a total abstinence society. And it was, there's a long tradition among Irish and Irish Americans to make that commitment. But it sort of ebbed and flowed in terms of popularity. In the 19th century, it was uh, Father Matthew, total abstinence society. But the pioneers had reformed in the in Ireland, maybe in the 20s or the teens. I don't know exactly. It was in honor of the Sacred Heart. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're 
actively involved with the pioneers. You're a chaplain with the pioneers. I'm sure you're saying mass a lot for the, for the group. They had communion breakfasts and things, right? I haven't done now for several years. I haven't been able to. Mm -hmm. Father, Father Pat Spicer is their present chaplain. Oh, okay. Great. So at some point, though, in the diocese, you were assigned to become involved with the Catholic Youth Organization. And um, I was talking, I interviewed Tom Corgan on the podcast about his uncle, Monsignor Tom Corgan, who was very instrumental in getting that going in the diocese. And how did you get involved? Well, um, I got a call from the bishop one day, and he said, um, I want you to be our new diocesan youth director. And um, I can remember it was June the 7th of 1968. And I said, Bishop, I think you're making a big mistake. I belong in parish life, working with young people, but I don't feel called to a position of a director of the Catholic Human Organization. That was like on a Monday. <laughs> he just listened to what I said. And he said, I'll see you on Friday. <laughs> he didn't give you a choice, huh? No, I <laughs> went down and I, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Okay. What were your responsibilities there? Well, I, all the youth programs for the entire diocese, so Akron, Lorraine, Cleveland, the whole diocese of Cleveland, uh, I was responsible for the youth programs, the high clubs, all of that, all the athletics. Mm -hmm. So each parish would have an athletic program, Catholic Youth Organization athletic program, with right. competition like basketball and football and things like that. Right. However, I felt called to something else. What was it? I felt like... I have an, in my staff, I've got people that take care of the athletics, the high clubs. They don't really need me to do that. Okay. So I had a friend of mine, Father Tom McKillop in Toronto. And the first day I came to the youth office, his flyer was on my desk. Uh-huh. He was the Vassal Youth Director for Toronto. But he said he felt called to lead our young people in a way of the social gospel. Oh, okay. And so we started, that's how I started really with a lot of youth work as well. I started by bringing people like John Howard Griffin, the author of Black Like Me. I got involved with Mother Teresa and other people that were living the gospel message. Mm -hmm. Met with a priest called Father Dan, who was a junkie priest for New York, working with all the addicts. Mm -hmm. So I started meeting all these people, and I would go up to Toronto all the time where Father Tom would have an annual celebration with 3,000 young people. Like the first time I went up there, it was Mother Teresa and John Vanier were speaking to these young people. Mm -hmm. People like uh, the author of, uh, of the Holocaust, uh, Victor Frankl. Oh, wow. Okay. All these people. Yeah. And I would invite them to come back to Cleveland and talk to our young people in the music hall. Oh, okay. I took another whole direction with young people. They didn't expect that, did they? <laughs> we, had, we even had a march for hunger. Uh-huh. Near the end of Mayor St uh, Stokes's, when he was mayor of Cleveland. We had over 3,000 young people walk. At that time, half of our money went to the people of Biafra mm. and half of the city of Cleveland. Okay. We made $30,000 back in 1970. Wow. And so that sent me another whole direction. Yeah. So that's while you were at CYO, right. all of these experiences, but working with youth was the through line because your friend in Canada was working with youth as well. And it was right. a very tumultuous time for young people. 
I'd say with the draft and the war and things like that and civil rights. Right. Did you feel that you needed to to tap into some of these things that the young people were feeling and, and experiencing? Yes, I, I took three young men who were um, during the Vietnam War. They were against the war. But I took three young people to Washington to meet with Senator Saxby and to explain why they were conscientious objectors. Okay. And when we finished, Senator Saxby said, you know, I know I am a hawk, but you've convinced me to be a, a dove. My goodness. We were walking out of the room, I, he said, but I, I'm going to still have to maintain my position as a hawk. But oh. I was very touched by these three conscientious objectors that I brought to him. Hmm. Wow. My first and only time in Washington in a senator's room. And how did you interact with people like Father Begin and, you know, other priests who were sort of prominent in the anti-war movement? Yeah, I knew them very well at the time I was a chaplain of the county jail. Oh, okay. <laughs> and they would end up there sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. Those years took me a lot of weight. And I knew that the youth programs were in good hands. I entrusted it to all the people in the office. Mm-hmm. And I just knew that they didn't need me to do that. It's already done. Mm-hmm. And you didn't want to do office work. That's why yeah. you didn't want you didn't want to do it to begin with. You didn't want to do office work to begin with, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So how do you convince your superiors to let you go or keep going in this other direction, though, with social justice? I don't know. Um, I didn't get any objections or Bishop Isman never got my way or mm-hmm. um, I, I thought I got support. Um, I had a lot of support from my Bishop Pilla and Bishop Isman. Mm-hmm. Or I ever said, why are you doing this? You know, what does this got to do with CYO? You know? <laughs> But uh, as I say, I never had anybody say, stop, don't do that, get out of that. Mm-hmm. And that's my blessing. I had really that support all the time. It sounds like you've had it all the way through. Yeah. But maybe you make your own support, huh? Maybe you, there's something about you that convinces people to support you. <laughs> so how did you begin to form a community to live among people suffering from social injustice? Right. Because that becomes your, your life. Well, again, to my friend, Father Tom McKillop, uh, I had his funeral and everything. We became like brothers in the next eight years of my life or more than that. You know? mm-hmm. I was always going to Toronto. And uh, at, at one point when I got to the airport, this man said to me, the airlines said, do you live in Toronto or Cleveland? Because <laughs> <laughs> he saw you in line all the time. <laughs> and Tom was so good to me. And... Uh, he led me all these with these experiences we were doing together. And uh, mm-hmm. so he said, I just made a retreat in 1968 with a man called John Vanier. John has fallen into some difficulty now in the latter years of his life. But he gave a powerful retreat. And Tom said, I think you should make that retreat. Uh-huh. So I made that retreat. And during that time, it became very clear to me that I'm being called to live my life with poor people. I must go to the margin. So that's what happened. And I came back from that retreat, and I started those retreats in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. 1972, we began with a retreat called Let's Celebrate Jesus. Okay. August the 12th of 1972, and we went out into the streets of Huff, and then into Glenville, out to the women in the Warrensville workhouse, to the county jail, to Westside Malachy's at St. Coleman's, and we had 
for one whole week, we went to seven different areas. Uh-huh. We pinpointed the seven poorest areas of Cleveland. For seven days, we had a retreat day in every one of those poor neighborhoods. And that was an incredible experience. Uh-huh. All that came and all that experienced it. And that all came while I was still doing youth work. Oh, okay. It all came in 1972. I didn't leave the office of the youth department until 1975. Oh, my goodness. So this was all happening during that time. And, um, you know, I was feeling more and more called to poor people and less and less called to the structure of CYO, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. So I knew in 1975 it was time for me to leave. And I went to the bishop and I said, no, I must pursue this call to live among the poor of the city of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And he was open to that. So, mm-hmm. uh, he gave me his blessings and I left and uh, in the fall of 75, and then another whole chapter of my life opens up. But I mean, in any event, that's what happened to CYO. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And what do you mean by another whole chapter? The start of your life? Central Avenue. Uh-huh. Right. I lived there now for 40 years, myself and Maggie. And uh, that in the journey in itself was powerful. You know? mm-hmm. How did you decide which neighborhood to live in? Well, it, it appeared at that time, and it was. The central area was among the poorest areas in Cleveland mm-hmm. and the most violent. Yeah. There were a lot of shootings at that time. And it was a lot of poverty. I mean, when we came there, people were living in shacks. There were a lot of homeless people, mm-hmm. alcoholics, drug addicts, mm-hmm. people just getting out of prison. And how did you obtain a house? Well, we saw a house. <laughs> to this day, there's never been a house that there's a little thing that said for rent. And we thought, that's perfect. <laughs> okay. We uh, spoke to the owner of the house, and he said, yeah, you can have it for $75 a month. So I said, okay. So we moved in in 1977. And what cross street was? Central and what? East 35th and Central. Okay. All right. And how did Sister Maggie become involved in the mission? She was already a, a sister of the Charity Sisters of St. Augustine. Okay. And she fell called to go to the poor, too. Mm-hmm. Did she uh, attend some of these retreats or get involved when you were doing the? During that week of those retreats. Mm-hmm. Okay. She was then only 21 years old. Wow. Yeah. And she became a part of those seven days. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, she felt called to that and um, went to her community and said she wanted to live her life with the poor. And then at, at that time, Sister Henrietta was living in Huff and she asked, could I go and live there? And they, they felt, no, it wouldn't be best for her because she was so young and hadn't yet finished her postulancy. Mm-hmm. So she asked permission, and she came with me and two other people. There were five of us all together. But that was after going across the country for 13 months. Oh, okay. That's another whole journey. Oh, what journey? What was that about? Living among poor people. But across the country? Jesus formed his disciples in the desert, in the city, in the mountains. Uh-huh. That pattern for 13 months. So you felt that you had to, the traveling in all these different environments was part of the of the formative experience that you needed. Went to a place called Abiquiu, New Mexico, out in uh, New Mexico. Christ Monastery in the desert. And that was your goal to get there? Yeah, we were there for six weeks. Then from that, we came into the city, Kansas City. I had a friend who was a, a spiritual director, and he was guiding us, and he lived in Kansas City. Okay. Father Jim Flanagan, and he lived among the poor. He guided us. Did you feel you needed some mentorship in seeing how 
how that works before you set up your own house? Uh, no, just uh, just go and live with the people. You know, you'll find out what you're supposed to do. Okay, a lot of trust, Father Jim. That 13 months prepared us for our journey in Central. Yeah, right. You felt you needed to prepare yourself, though. So you've described a very dangerous setting, but you start to live there. How do people respond to you? Well, I think the first thing, I mean, I was there a couple of days and maybe a week. And um, this man came to me who was, a, he was very poor. He was addicted on drugs, alcohol. And he put his hands on my shoulder and he said, you know, I know now that God loves me because he sent you here. Wow. That became a very clear affirmation uh-huh. that we belong there. Yeah. And you just persisted, huh? And it was difficult in the beginning because we're the only people in the white community living in an all-black community. Right. They had a great reason not to trust us, you know? Yeah. They've been hurt so many times. So that there were times when people were kind of planning to get us out of there. We knew that. But another good woman, her name was Jessie Francis, God bless her. Uh, African-American, came up in the hardness of the South and became a Catholic. But she didn't know us at all. She just saw us one day up cleaning our house outside, and she, she knew that there were people in the policy house wanting to get rid of us. And she said, don't get rid of them. They may be angels sent to us by God. Oh, my goodness. Wow. They never doubted again. They never made any question to get rid of us. Right. You had a lot of support, again, from people who then found out about what you were doing and helped raise money for you every year. I know Bridie Joyce and Helen Malloy and some others have stepped up and done that for a long time. Is that the case? Can you tell me about that? That set up, yeah. I don't want to get in a name because there's so many that they're all so good to us to support I that. know. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and what did you use the money for when they raised the money? What did you use it for? Just to help our people. Uh, there were so many without, we needed to find some housing for some and clothing, food. We had a big giveaway every Thursday afternoon of food for the whole neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Also, um, education things. We were actually during the strike that year, we took in about 25, 30 kids into our house and educated them during the strike. Oh, a teacher strike. We needed money for school supplies and all that. And mm-hmm. We ran summer camps mm-hmm. and we had no money. So when they gave us money, we could provide the kinds of things you needed for a summer camp for six weeks. Uh, there was your CYO experience <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> in, in camps, in summer camps. Yeah. And they had 100 kids. Maggie and like four other people ran a summer camp for 500, for over 100 kids, five people. Wow. Yeah, wow, that's right. And um, so all through the years, and then and then eventually we got to the point where some of we saw that children were being hurt and because of drugs, because of alcohol, children were being hurt. So we decided to go to the county and start a foster program. Mm-hmm. Right. So at one, at one point we took in 13 children. Mm-hmm. Not all at once. They would come to, maybe from birth to two years of age, three years of age. Another group would come. They keep on coming. Yeah, right, right. But it got to be very hard in the sense that, you know, the county had its regulations. We understood that. And there were some times we had to bring the children back and it, we didn't feel it was a good environment to bring them back to. But we had no choice. Mm. And then that led us into adoption. Oh. And Maggie adopted. So 
Now we've adopted three. Three children. Wow. Those are twenties. Josie and Martin just graduated from St. Ed's. Uh huh. Got him when he was two days old. Wow. Caroline Canos when she was six months old, and now she's a seventeen at the School of the Arts. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So you just immersed yourself in the life of the neighborhood, and whatever money came in from friends and supporters went right out to direct direct help. It was direct help, but there were so many needs, you know. Yeah. Um, How did you sustain yourself? Because you can't possibly meet all those needs. No, we um, that helped us to sustain ourselves. Those, those funds helped us to provide paying gas and light bills. And cause I asked at one point in time would they'd be upset if I used it for some of the utilities and stuff. And they said, no, no, no. One person said to me, I don't care how you use it, just use it. Uh-huh. Because at first I, I want to make sure that they're okay if I if I do it for some of our own needs, uh, which helped us. You know? mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I just, uh, I'm so in awe of your total commitment. Not very many people could have taken that on, that life, but you still... You still navigated all the worlds. You know, you were still a priest of the diocese. You were still very connected to the Irish community. You were in service to the poor. You just sort of held it all together, I suppose, with the grace of God, right? By the grace of God, right. And a lot of uh, good friends who who helped you along the way, but I'm sure it was discouraging sometimes. There were times when you wondered if you have enough money to pay the next... (laughs) Rent bill or whatever, yeah. There were times when was, things were thin. Yeah. But um, I just knew that somehow we're going to be, we'll get through it all, you know? hmm Yeah. We did. How is the work going to continue, or can it continue, beyond you? Well, Sister Maggie is the one. Uh, she'll she'll continue. She's doing it right now. I mean, I, I'm unable to do anything right now. At this yeah. point, I'm, I'm more weak. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. But Maggie is doing it all. She's she really is the head of little brothers and sisters of the Eucharist, and she's the one. Take, she's the mom in these kids' lives. Yeah, I'm finally called by them, Abba. But I can't do what she can do. I can tell you that. Yeah, right, right. She's so committed and so given, and uh, she spends herself fully for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, she has two kids to take care of plus an old man. Plus. You know? <laughs> Well, don't give her too much trouble. <laughs> I have to be careful when I listen to what she asks me to do. You know. <laughs> okay. All right. You do what she tells you. I do. All right. Good. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I cannot believe what you've done. And I hope it makes some sense. But oh, it does. It does. Well, no, it's absolutely crazy, but <laughs> but, but it does make sense. You're you've lived a radical commitment. Another thing that's important is that through the years, I was able to form these fraternities of priests. We still come together once a month. And we pray together and we share our lives together. And it's been a great gift to the priests to help them in their daily ministry, especially now when there's shortage of priests and a lot of needs of people. Oh, that's a good point. And fellowship with other priests really right. helped you along the way. That's At right. All these various uh, crucial points you right. had somebody, uh, another priest, who was encouraging, providing mentorship, spiritual guidance. So you're right. giving back to your fellow priests as well. Right. Oh, that's wonderful. Wow. We're so proud of you. You've done so much. I could start crying. 
we just uh, can't believe all that you've done. Proud of being able to support you and help you do it. But you're the one out there doing it, no matter how much others support you from their, <laughs> the safety of our living rooms. You're the one who's out there doing it. I know you can't do it anymore, but you're there in spirit, encouraging them all still. So we thank you so, so much, Father Jim. Thank you, Margaret. Yeah. All right. Now, have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you sharing your story. May God bless you and keep you. (laughs) Thank you. And you too. Thanks for joining Finding Home, the Irish American Archives Society's podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Find more on the IAAS website at irisharchives.org. The Irish American Archives Society is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening.